Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and uh, it's a pleasure to have with us today, uh, coming back for a, another appearance, Congressman Jamie Raskin. Congressman, thanks for joining us today. The pleasure is mine, Brian. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit about January 6th and some other things. So stick around. We got to pay the bills. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, welcome back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and of course with us today is Congressman Jamie Raskin, who as of late uh, has been involved in the January 6th hearings. Now I I know that we postponed Jamie because of the uh, the hurricane, but are coming back the thirteenth. Is that correct? Um, well, it looks likely then, but I I couldn't say for sure. But next week, either the thirteenth or fourteenth, I'd say. And and I guess the question a lot of people have the question. Uh, and I guess I'll let you. I, I don't know how much you want to give away of what you all are going to do then. But um, there's concern that, of course, if the Democrats do not secure the House, that this will be over and done with by the end of, uh, you know, before the uh, next Congress is seated and that uh, that nothing will actually come from this. And there's still a concern about linking Donald Trump directly to the insurrection. What are your thoughts on that? Well, on the last point, I don't think there's any ambiguity left. I think there's uh, there's got to be consensus in the country, if not unanimity, that none of this would have happened without Donald Trump. Is there anybody who really thinks that if Donald Trump had just conceded the election and said this was over, he was disappointed that 60 plus courts had rejected every claim of electoral fraud and corruption. He was disappointed that the Electoral College went 306 to 232 for Biden and the popular vote went 7 million votes for Biden. He disagrees with it. He still imagined, theoretically, there's some fraud out there that hadn't been proven, but he was going to go home and do the right thing like every other president in American history. Does anybody think that we would have suffered these repeated efforts at a political coup and then a violent insurrection? I mean, uh, it's just, no. it just defies you know, any reason. It all came from him. And I think we've been able to demonstrate every element of these successive attempts to overthrow the 2020 presidential election result and and have Trump seize the presidency. Um, and that story is clear for people. We're going to fill in some more um, details in our final 
hearing, but essentially the well, country has the truth now. What what are those details that you think you'll be able to fill in? Well, um, you know, we're we're not going to talk about them before we get there, but there are different lingering details that help to make sense of the whole thing. Um, the telephone and, call to the White House or from the White House the day of the insurrection, Jenny Thomas, any of that coming up, you think? Um, you know, I, I'm not certain because we were set to go with one particular set of materials in a script. And then because of the hurricane, we had to uh, postpone it. Um, and so there might be some changes made. So I can't say for sure where we will end up, but everything will make the story cohere. Um, and people will understand the former president's culpability. And more importantly, I think people will understand the continuing clear and present danger that we're operating under with uh, Trump at large and all of uh, the authoritarian forces he's unleashed against American democracy. Well, you don't have any problems convincing me. I covered that administration for, you know, four years. And I sat in the briefing room and asked him, you know, win, lose or draw. Will he accept a peaceful transfer of power? And he said, no. And he's and historically <laughs> he said, no. I mean, no president has ever said no to that except Donald Trump. So I don't, but for those, I, I mean, and we see that the numbers are dwindling. The, the support for Donald Trump is ebbing. Yet there are those people, especially the QAnon and other uh, conspiracy theorists who cling to him as if he's a messiah. I don't know if you'll ever convince them of anything, but I don't think that's the question. I think the question is, do you think that there's enough there to pursue him criminally? Well, the first thing is that's not really the question the committee's looking at. Our uh, of course. Yeah, I mean, our question is one of just delivering the facts to the people in Congress. What a concept. And, yeah, yeah. And, and our understanding of why it happened and then laying out legislative recommendations that would allow us to prevent a repetition of coups, insurrections, political violence, and electoral sabotage moving into the future. But you're right, the public has a great hunger for individual criminal accountability here. People want to see justice in that sense. And I feel that myself, I'm part of that. And um, I think that there has been overwhelming evidence already put into the record that um, a that prosecutors could use at lots of different levels of government to make a case. And, you know, the, the judge um, in uh, the case from California, um, uh, stated that he thought that that it was likely that um, that Donald Trump had committed offenses against the United States. So obviously there's got to be a prosecution. He's entitled to a presumption of innocence um, and the justice process has got to uh, work its course. Um, but we there have been more than 900 cases brought already against people for assaulting federal officers, for conspiring to interfere with the federal proceeding, the counting of electoral college votes, um, and uh, seditious conspiracy. So that judge in the John Eastman litigation in California said that he thought, as at least as a civil matter, that it was more likely than not that crimes had been committed. Um, That's so, I, so it's out there. How do I put, all right, the two key points specifically, do you think that Jenny Thomas being 
delusional and in, in saying that, you know, that there was uh, uh, that Donald Trump actually did win is is of importance. And secondly, the, the call that was made from the White House on the day of, of uh, the insurrection. Do you think either one of those two points are important? And secondly, uh, from that, as a constitutional scholar, I mean, you know, we've you and I have talked over the I mean, you and I were talking back when you were in the state legislature in Maryland about different issues. And this issue, I find. I, I don't even know how to put it. I find it as disturbing as anything I've ever covered in 40 years as a reporter. So those two specific points. And then to the last point, how disturbing is what you've looked at in the hearing? How disturbing is it to you as a, as a, a scholar? Well, so on the first one, uh, you know, about Jenny Thomas, is it of importance? I, I'd say it's of slender importance to the overall investigative proceeding, but it's of tremendous importance to me as a citizen, and I think to all of us, that there are um, intelligent, well-educated people who have access to all the information in the world who continue to um, drown their minds in propaganda and big lies and disinformation and conspiracy theories. Um, I mean, it's just remarkable to me that, uh, you know, a well-educated woman who happens to be married to a Supreme Court justice, no less, would disregard the findings of 60 federal and state court judges, including eight nominated to the bench by Donald Trump himself, and simply proclaim without any evidence that the election was stolen from Trump and that he's really the president. Uh, that, that to me is just a matter of essential civic concern that she's representative of millions and millions of people who are thinking that way. Um, that's a dangerous thing for an enlightenment democracy built on the principle of reason in public places. Um, so yeah, now look, she. I wanna be clear, she has a first amendment right like every other citizen to believe and spout whatever nonsense she wants. Just, right. just because she's married to a Supreme Court justice, at least in my book, doesn't mean that she can't say those utterly deranged and depraved things. She's got a right to do it. And in some sense, we're better off knowing where she stands. Yes. The, the real issue for him and, and, and every other Supreme Court justice is that they don't have uh, rules of binding ethics on them because they get to decide in their own case whether they have a conflict of interest in any particular case before the court. But that doesn't relate to her. That relates to him. Right. The, the ethical responsibility that's being evaded here is by every Supreme Court justice with a set of non-rules which say that they get to be a judge in their own case. Jane, you know, the, Madison said that the very essence of the American system of law would be that you are not a judge in your own case, but that's precisely how the Supreme Court operates with respect to its ethical duties today. And as far as the telephone call from the White House? As far as the second thing about the telephone call from the White House, um, remember, that's one of thousands of different details um, 
uh, I think that that particular call lasted less than a minute. Um, and um, our investigative staff is aware of that. But um, this is not some kind of Agatha Christie who done it. We know exactly <laughs> who done it. And uh, the, the Donald Trump himself went out and said, you've got to fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. And when cheating's involved, you're operating with a completely different set of rules. He could not have been more crystal clear that he was inciting that crowd to go and, quote, stop the steal and engage in what became the insurrection. I was there. I was, I, I, to me, you're right. It's not an Agatha Christie whodunit. I was there when he and Rudy, you know, they, they said, march up there and start some shit. I mean, basically, anybody who was there knew exactly where it was going. You know? Donald Trump, after learning of the fact that his mob had stormed the Capitol, beaten the daylights out of our officers, and uh, drove the House and the Senate out of the chambers and was actively pursuing his vice president, doubled down by sending out another tweet saying that Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. So again, there's not a big factual mystery here. I mean, the mystery, of course, is why you have almost an entire political party which continues to follow at his beck and call like members yes. of a religious cult. That part is a mystery. That, um, yeah, the religious cult aspect of it. I think any religious cult is is like that. There's a mystery to it. Um, I, I, you know, I always go back to Thomas Paine. You know, the original principles upon which America re resisted. Remember them rightly is repossessing them. We. We don't seem to be in seem to be possessing what the founding fathers put forth. Um, I, I, the other thing that Payne said that always comes back to mind is I become irritated at the attempt to govern mankind by force and fraud, as if we're all knaves and fools. And that always reminds me of Donald Trump. <laughs> well, that, that's so right. Um, and uh, that, that's sort of a sad passage for me because. Uh, my son, Tommy, also used to talk about that and talk about Nietzsche saying that uh, politics is just force <clears throat> and fraud and the will to power. Um, and Tom Payne was saying, no, it doesn't have to be that way. We, we can see it with our eyes. We can recognize fraud. We can recognize tyrants like Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. And so that's the struggle that we're in today, Brian. It's the struggle to get people to wake up to the truth. And that's it. And the struggle for the truth is the struggle for democracy. It's the same thing. I 100% agree. And so that brings me back to that third question. Have you ever seen, you're, you're, you know, I, I, you're a scholar of the Constitution. Have you ever seen anything as damning or threatening to our, 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 to our democracy as this? I mean, you know, speaking as a citizen before I speak as a scholar, um, which maybe at one point I was, I haven't done much scholarship, <laughs> but as a citizen, I mean, I, I lived through January 6th and I just got to say that is as close to fascism as I ever want my country or my family or my constituents to come. Um, I was staring in the face of fascism and what fascism looks like, um, the idea that one small group, a tiny group, much less than one-tenth of 1% of the American people 
can show up bloodthirsty and hellbent on overthrowing an election, and they can supplant the public will with yeah. their determination to put their tyrant back in office. That is as close to fascism as I ever want to come. And um, so uh, I guess I would say that that was the worst I've ever seen things. Um, there was no reasoning with those people that day. None. Uh, I, I, the only no, thing is when they chanted hang Mike Pence, they meant hang Mike Pence. That was not some kind of uh, metaphorical uh, flight of fancy. No, not at all. I, I mean, I've told this story often. I, I stood there and watched them trying to crawl up a wall. And I said, hey, morons, there's steps on either side. Somebody's going to get their necks broken. Sure enough, somebody fell, I think broke their neck. And six or seven of them came running over to me. They had already pounded a couple of other reporters. And the only thing that saved me was I had a, a Playboy press pass. And I said, hey, I, wait a minute, I'm with Playboy. And the six of them, I mean, these morons stopped in their tracks. One of them looked at me and goes, really? And I go, yeah. And, and he goes, well, uh, could you get me into a party at the mansion? I said, oh, yeah, sure, not a problem. And then they turned around and left. And I'm going, I have never seen A, such morons in my life. But B, you found out what they were really all about. <laughs> well, that, that's impressive to hear that Playboy still has that kind of juice and that, yeah. kind, of, <laughs> that kind of traction out there uh, with uh, right-wing insurrectionists. Um, yeah, it was a very dangerous time. And, um, you know, obviously it was no laughing matter for no. Officer Dunn and, you know, uh, Officer Hodges and Officer Fanon and these officers who were just getting the daylights beaten out of them with Confederate battle flags and American flags and Trump flags and steel rods and baseball bats. Um, and, uh, you know, 150 officers ended up wounded. Look, if if they would hang their own vice president, who they all voted for um, and defended, what would they do to anybody else in the country? And, yeah, if Donald, well, and if Donald Trump would sell him down the river, who would he not sell down the river? He'd sell everyone down the river. I've been convinced of that since he walked down and made fun of a of a handicapped uh, reporter. He cares about nothing but himself. And, and that's frightening. And, uh, you know, before we go to break, I, I'd say the last thing about Donald Trump in that day. And the most frightening part of it all was watching it unfold and being absolutely unable to do anything about it. Even communicating to people about it seemed to spark more violence. And I have been in conflict zones. I was in Ukraine. I was in the Gulf War. I've been down in Central America during conflicts. And I always, I felt safer in a war than I felt that day outside of our own capital, because I did not know who was going to come after me. I could not identify who the enemy was. And that, to me, was the most frightening situation I've ever been in, to be honest. It was uh, it was total chaos. Um, and that's why I say, um, you know, the true conservatives are with us, because yes. I, always, I always learned that conservatism was about preventing chaos and nihilism and what we were presented with was fascist chaos and absolute nihilism and destructiveness that's what we were staring at 
And the hypocrisy of that moment, I have to tell you, I don't, it wasn't lost on me and I hope it wasn't lost on anyone else. Josh Hawley pumping his fist behind a, a, you know, I saw him do that behind a police line. He felt comfortable doing that. When the threat became real, uh, we saw in the videotape how quickly he could beat feet and run. <laughs> so I, kudos for whoever decided to put that video in that day. It was very illustrious. Well, you know, if you were going to go out and continue to deny the danger we were all in and the fear um, that clamped down on the Capitol, then the public needs to understand yeah, and I have uh, relatives, well, in-laws in Missouri who used to be fans of his and saw the video and no, and are no longer fans of his. So on that thought, we're gonna we're, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Hey, you, yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Kerman. With us is Congressman Jamie Raskin, and we're talking about the January 6th Commission. And, and Congressman, I guess one of the things I want to talk about is, you know, we've already tried to establish some change coming from the hearings, congressional change. And Trump has gone after Mitch McConnell for supporting the electoral uh, vote reform. What else do you think needs to take place to ensure that something like this is uh, doesn't happen again. I mean, well, in terms of in terms of the political coup part of it, the attack on the joint session of Congress on January sixth was just the end game yeah. part of it. So we got to reform the Electoral Count Act to make sure that it's clear, as it always was to everybody, the vice president cannot unilaterally vaporize electoral college votes and. We should make it more difficult for there to be objections and to, uh, you know, increase the standards for that. But all of that is really quite trivial compared to the need to protect the constitutional right to vote. Uh, and we should do that with a constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right to vote because we don't have it. We just have a ragtag series of anti-discrimination amendments like the 15th and the 19th. Um, we need to protect the integrity of the electoral structure against attempts to subvert the vote counting process, which is happening in several states. We need to clamp down on voter suppression tactics that are being used. Um, and all of these things lead us to the necessary reform of the filibuster. And then ultimately, you know, we need to pass the Maryland-based national popular vote interstate compact, and then just grow out of the electoral college. We've got to eventually just leave it behind the way we left behind 
state legislatures selecting U.S. senators and move to election by the people. We got to move away from this antiquated and creaky and dangerous electoral college system, which is fundamentally an, an anti-democratic. I mean, we've had five presidential vote losers in the popular vote become president, including twice in this century in 2000 and 2016. So it's time for us to elect the president with the way we elect everybody else, governors, senators, mayors, representatives, whoever gets the most votes wins. And we're spending, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're spending tens of millions of dollars a year exporting American democracy to other countries that are writing new constitutions. And one thing they never say to us, Brian, is, oh, you know, one thing we you guys have that we love is your electoral college system. We'll take that. We'll import that to our country. It's it's totally out of date. It was based on the fact that we didn't have the communication system and the transportation system, much less a constitutional right to vote, right. Um, such that we had to come up with this totally jerry-rigged, gerrymandered system, and we don't need it anymore. We can just elect the president on the basis of every vote counting and every vote counting equally. Well, I'll tell you one thing that in my travels that I have heard that people have respected about the United States over the last 200 years was no matter what there was a it's the one thing that set us apart from everybody else was a peaceful transfer of power and that came under heavy fire in the last election and while we're not in a general election this time you mentioned something that makes me concerned and we're talking about voter suppression they're claiming voter fraud and usually it's it's those who have been claiming the the fraud that have been guilty of it. How concerned are you about the midterm elections being? Well, in, in our system of government, of course, it's all based on federalism. So it's decentralized. So you have to go state by state to see where the right to vote is secure and now where the right to vote is endangered by voter suppression tactics. And this new idea of imposing a super board of elections that will superintend the board of elections and review the election results according to a gubernatorial appointment or an appointment by the state legislature. And so um, you just have to go state by state to see. And then we need to make sure that um, the voter protection groups, the election protection groups are doing everything in their power to stand up for a free and fair election against all these dirty tricks. So thus, coming up to the midterms, are you concerned that that in certain states that it's it's we won't have there will be a a, a I don't know, a, there will be an election that's not legitimate? Well, I mean, I don't want to go to that because that's, of course, now the rhetoric of the right yes. where they're trying, you know, uh, they're trying to do that even in Maryland, Dan Cox and Mastriano in Pennsylvania. They know that they're going to lose because they have a marginalized right wing minority program and their their voter base is vanishing. Um, and so they're already trying to cast out. Well, it's Maryland. It never really existed. I mean, that's yeah. the idea that I mean, but I, you know, so I don't want to cast doubt on the integrity of the results. But what I will say is that we just need to make sure that civil society and the political parties 
are doing whatever they can do and whatever they must do to guarantee that there will be a fair vote in the election. That's fair. Um, that's what we need to do in every particular state. But I don't want to contribute to the the paranoia, which is now the you know standard operating procedure of my friends across the aisle. Yeah, and uh, I've I've watched you in in uh, on the floor addressing some of them uh, that you're able to be as uh, congenial congenial as you have been still is impressive to me. I don't know that I could do that. There is an <laughs> there is there is an issue the um the independent state legislature theory that Donald Trump has referred to and may see it uh, there may be a case in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, addressing it. Is that the tool by which you believe that Trump and his supporters will try to uh, dis disassemble uh, fair and free elections? Well, they'll use any means necessary to disassemble free and fair elections, which is done instrumentally in order just to guarantee his political power and his victory. Um, but the independent state legislature doctrine is an assault on state constitutions. It's an assault on state Supreme Courts, and it's an assault on um, the on the state laws by which legislatures have set up the electoral system, where there are judicial um, backups to the system, where there are administrative actors like the Board of Elections. And the independent state legislature doctrine is an effort basically by uh, Republican uh, diehard partisans to say, well, where you've got a Republican-controlled legislature in a swing state like in Pennsylvania or North Carolina, Wisconsin, that legislature can do whatever it wants, unbound by the state constitution and state Supreme Courts. And um, obviously it would cast doubt on the legitimacy of more than two centuries of elections in states where uh, the courts have understood and legislatures have understood that the state legislatures are embedded in a state constitutional context. And those state legislatures are just the representatives of the people um, as designed by and as operating through state constitutions. Right. It's, so the, the critics say that it's, uh, you know, it's antithetical to the framers' intent uh, in the architecture of, of the U.S. Constitution. I, I, I suppose you would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's but specifically, it's an attack on state constitutions yeah. and the the way that our federal constitution has integrated state constitutions and legislatures and state supreme courts. So going forward, um, you know, I mentioned I've seen you on the floor of the house being far more congenial, one of the than I could ever be. There are those who say that. Um, it and they're critics of the Republicans. Maybe they're extremists themselves, but say that the time is to take the gloves off. That you've been, you know, some of uh, members of Congress have been too congenial, have been too nice to the members uh, of the Republican Party. How do you deal with that criticism? Well, see, to me, it's not a question of manners and you know gentility and kindness and. All those things I think we can have at the same time that we are absolutely 100% tough on lies and tough on extremism and tough on conduct that's dangerous to the Republic. 
So um, I try not to engage in ad hominem insults and ridicule and mockery, which are, of course, Donald Trump's basic. That's his go to. Yeah. (laughs) His go to is to insult women's looks, to make fun of people's weight, to give them names like, you know, Lil Marco, to say that Ted Cruz's father assassinated John F. Kennedy, um, just to, to make up ad hominem insults against people to try to humiliate them and mock them and disparage them. We try not to do that at the same time that we try to be absolutely unwaveringly emphatic about what's true and what's in the rule of law and what's in the constitution. And that's the balance I try to strike. And what's your greatest concern for the U.S. going forward? Well, I'm concerned that democracy is under siege all over the world and the autocrats and the kleptocrats and the theocrats are on the march, whether you're talking about the theocratic thugs who run Iran or Saudi Arabia or the autocrats who... Uh, with Vladimir Putin run Russia, with the oligarchs there and their imperialist, filthy, bloodthirsty war against the people of Ukraine, which now the people of Ukraine are winning thanks to President Biden and um, our determination to support democratic forces. No thanks to the Matt Gates's and Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boebert's of the world who are cheerleaders for Vladimir Putin. Um, You know, but democracy is under siege everywhere you turn, from Moscow to Mar-a-Lago. And they are all rooting for Donald Trump and for the defeat of democracy in America, because they understand that it is our historic assignment to stand up for human rights and for political freedom. Tom Paine said that America would become an asylum to humanity. Not an insane asylum, mind you, but right. a place of refuge for people fleeing from political and religious and economic persecution. And he said, when America became the first democratic nation, then the cause of America would become the cause of mankind, the cause of all humanity. And that's the America we're fighting for, an America that will be a champion for democracy and human rights and freedom all over the world. And uh, how hopeful or how concerned are you that we'll be successful in that endeavor? Well, um, you know, I'm not in the prognostication business, Brian. I'm in the mobilization business. I'm out there fighting. I've been in Texas. I've been in Florida. I've been in Wisconsin. I'm going to Michigan, Illinois, Minnesota. I'm going all over the country to fight for the Democratic Party, which I'm sad to say, I'm not happy to say, I'm sad to say the Democratic Party is the party of democracy because we only have one left because Lincoln's Lincoln's party has become an authoritarian cult. And I'm looking at my desk at my bust of Abraham Lincoln I inherited from my grandfather. And there are many Republicans I love and I revere and I adore, but not this Republican party under Donald Trump. It is a menace and a danger to democratic institutions in America. One of the biggest problems I have with that is our, my profession's um, complicity in it. And I have, you know, the book that I just wrote, Free the Press, 
it, it and, and by the way, thank you. And, and I'm going to bring that up. You were on the floor of the house trying to speak to a, a, a reporter's right to keep a confidential source. And, and um, hopefully that bill will pass this time, but our, my profession has been stripped since Ronald Reagan, the, the wheels have come off. The guidelines are gone. There's no, there's no, there's no restraint. So you've had con smaller and smaller numbers of companies own more and more of what's going on. There's little diversity in uh, reporting. And it was Ben Bagdicki and at the uh, Washington Post has said, if you want to have true diversity in government or true diversity in, in our country represented, you have to have diversity of ownership in reporting. And when I first got into the bus this business, 80% of what you see, read, or hear was owned by maybe 20 companies. Today, six companies own 90% of what you see, read, or hear. And I, I'm concerned that we are we are allowing the, the the autocrats to overcome democracy because we're more interested in clickbait and profit than doing our job. How do you deal with that? Well, I mean, I think or you're right. You agree. <laughs> we, we've got we've got to diversify the sources of journalism and media, um, but we do have a serious problem. We've got to reckon with in the the big social media companies. I mean, we have two whistleblowers in our January 6th hearing process who told us they did everything in their power to say there's going to be a bloodbath on January 6th. There's going to be violence. And Twitter did nothing about it. Um, so we've got to ask the question of whether we think that's just a necessary price we have to pay for freedom of speech or whether there's something else that needs to be done about you know the big social media companies, particularly the ones that have been able to flourish and prosper because of Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act. So um, that's one issue. But the other is um, you know the question I think that Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton and all those guys raised, which is how do you keep um, a democratic self-government society going? without education you need to invest exactly. in education. you need an aroused and educated citizenry that is going to be vigilant for its freedom so a well-informed uh citizenry is necessary for democracy to thrive is was their tenant right that was right. that was the idea but we have vast media deserts today where there are no newspapers here in montgomery county and you're well aware when i first moved here what there were five papers that covered montgomery county there are entire, look, there are state legislatures that are undercovered by reporters. There are county uh, and city councils that no longer have reporters sitting in them. How do you, and you have state legislatures, you were on a state legislature in Maryland where they wanted to get rid of uh, public notice ads and let the state do it, which takes away money from independent uh, newspapers and destroys them. I, I, I cannot stress enough in my opinion, and I'll ask yours, that that you have to bust up media monopolies and have multiple ownership before you're going to, and that includes, you know, so you mentioned social media, they are effective monopolies in what they do. How do you, how can you apply antitrust legislation to media to make, to diversify ownership and give more voices and put more reporters out in the field? Um. Yes, well, it will require legislation, but that's one of the things that the 
antitrust subcommittee on House Judiciary has been looking at in terms of the rise of the large social media entities. Um, I think the committee converged around the idea that a social media company should not be both a gatekeeper to participation in commerce, but then also a participant in the commerce itself. And that creates a, a huge structural conflict of interest. So I think that, that those are just the kinds of questions we need to work out if we're going to make um, liberal democracy persist and survive in this century. And when you say liberal, you mean, of course, John Locke liberal. I mean, Locke and liberal. I mean, the, de democracy and liberty together. Yeah. Um, that, that's what we're talking about here. Well, we, we have such a vague definition. I cannot use the word liberal today. And, and if I preface it with John Locke liberal, I'm looked upon as if I'm, you know, looking down upon someone. The, the idea, the definition of terms has to be clear for people to understand what you're talking about, I, I suspect. Yeah. Well, uh, well, one of my colleagues uh, on the Republican side said to me, the problem with you, Raskin, is you're a liberal. And I said, you're damn right I'm a liberal because the heart of that word is liberty. And I'm a progressive because the heart of that word is progress. But these days, my favorite thing to call myself is a conservative because I want to conserve the land, the air, the water, the climate system, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the National Labor Relations Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, the Affordable Care Act, everything that the new party of nihilists wants to destroy is everything that I want to conserve. So I feel like I'm standing up for liberalism, conservatism, and progressivism today, in reality. And so you've worked with Liz Cheney, she'll be gone. Kensinger is gone. Is there anyone left that you can work with in the Republican side that is understanding of, of what's at stake? Well, there better be. I mean, we're going <laughs> to... Uh, we'll Have you found we'll anyone? <laughs> we'll see who survives this election. I've got several other friends who uh, will confide to me their profound doubts about what they call Orange Jesus is doing um and um but will they act i mean it cost liz cheney it cost kinzinger i mean mitch mcconnell has um he's been in bed with him and not and just by saying that he'll support the uh, the electoral act that you're you're speaking of he got a death threat hell and then trump made a racial slur about his wife based on that so is there anyone who will who will come forward and say it knowing full well that they could get the uh, wrath of Donald Trump and lose the money of Donald Trump. You know, Jefferson wrote a letter to a friend of his who was despairing about what was taking place with the Alien and Sedition Acts and the ah. prosecution of newspaper editors and stuff. And Lincoln wrote this letter and he said, um, a little patience and the reign of witches shall pass over. Their spells dissolve and the people recovering their true sight will restore their government to its true principles. And we must adhere in the meantime to those true principles because this is a game where principles are at stake. So, and so, so you're that. telling me in, in a roundabout way you have faith that we'll be able to come through this. I think that the reign of witches will pass over. <laughs> <laughs> or, or as my dad used to say, this too shall pass. That's... <laughs>
Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q podcast. That's J-A-T-Q podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Well, listen, uh, Jamie, I, I appreciate you doing this, and I, and I know you've been busy as hell. Um, I, I want to finish up going back to January 6th. Um, out of everything that you've seen, everything you've take that's taken place personally, do you think that Donald Trump will ever face an indictment? Well, a I'm, criminal with Dr. Indictment. I'm with Dr. King who said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I suppose there will be justice for us all. Um, but far more important than justice in that individual case will be our ability to vindicate the rights of the people and defend democracy against Donald Trump. That's even more important than what happens to him. And what do you tell those people who think that, you know, as a Trump supporter, that they're defending the the rights of the people and that you're the fascist? Um, Well, that's the great thing about the First Amendment and our Constitution. Anybody can believe whatever they want to believe. But uh, they should read Mary Trump's book about what Donald Trump has done to their family, and um, they should read the report of the January 6th Select Committee when it comes out. Um, I I can't tell you the number of people when I tell them I was there and I witnessed it for myself that I've been lied to. (laughs) With my own eyes, I was lied to. So I I, I wish you luck in trying to get people to to believe you because I've had very little luck at that. um, Well... I appreciate where you're coming from. Um, obviously, all of this has been an education into the the fragility of the human mind and how impressionable people are uh, by con men and fascists and authoritarians. Um, but our founders were enlightenment liberals who really thought that reason could govern and the positive passions could govern and not just hatred and fear and contempt. Um, And so um, let's make sure that the American experiment continues to thrive. Amen and woo hallelujah to that. And again, thank you for the the shield law. You think that will pass this time? Well, we passed it in the house on a bipartisan unanimous basis. And I was very happy that my Republican friends came along for that. Let's hope we can make the same thing happen in the Senate. Do you think it will? Well, um, I'm hoping uh, to do some work on that over the next couple of weeks and to see if we can move things. That The Senate is an interesting body. It moves at a snail's pace compared to the House of Representatives. Yes, and it's a, it, and it thinks a lot of itself. Um, that's unfortunately in some cases. Well, anything I can do to further that cause, please let me know. You know, I'm right there for it. Let's, I, I, I prefer not going to jail over confidential sources. It's, well, <laughs> th- thank you for your uh, professional pride and your courage 
And thanks for hanging tough for a free press. Well, I appreciate it, Jamie. Thank you so much. The show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thank you very much for Congressman Jamie Raskin being here again today. And uh, we'll catch you next time.